You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org. Hey everybody. Today, we will be listening to the second chapter of Lance Lambert's book, Jacob I Have Loved, read by Matt Jamie. This chapter is entitled, Jacob I Have Loved. Let's listen. Chapter 2. Jacob I Have Loved That the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Even as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, and that he, God, might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he also called. Romans 9 The glory of Jacob whom he loveth. Psalm 47 On a number of occasions in the word of God, the Lord declares his love for Jacob. The little phrase, Jacob I have loved, is perhaps one of the most wonderful and remarkable phrases that God ever spoke. Those who have little knowledge of their Bible and no knowledge of the story of Jacob, his history and character, would not be taken aback by this statement, I loved Jacob. On the other hand, if you know something about Jacob, then these words are radiant with the beauty of God's grace, of his mercy and love. They contain great encouragement for all those who know their own heart and nature. The fact that it is repeated in the Bible more than once means that it has real significance. Furthermore, it is linked to a theme in the Bible which, though not very popular today, is nevertheless one of its greatest themes. Divine Election Jacob the Loved One Preachers sometimes declare that the Old Testament ends with a curse. Technically, they take the very last words of the book of Malachi in English, which says, Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is a very strange way of reading the book. I do not think that the message of Malachi ends with a curse at all. In my estimation, it is a profound declaration of God's undying love for his people. We find this declaration in the words at the very beginning of the book. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Just as remarkable is the word in Malachi 3 verse 6. For I, the Lord, change not. And you would think that he would go on to say, Therefore beware, for judgment will fall on your unfaithfulness and fickleness. Instead, he says, For I the Lord change not, therefore ye, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, the power of God, the infinity of God, and the love of God are thrown on the side of his redeemed people, weak and sinful though they are. How wonderful is such a revelation! The invincible strength and the sovereign authority of God are for the weak Jacobs. He redeems. The writer of the Hebrew letter, by the Spirit of God, puts it this way. Wherein God, 
being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, interposed with an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope set before us. There is no character in the Bible, except, of course, the Lord Jesus, by which the whole people of God have been named. I have already made mention of this. The names Jacob and Israel have been given to the people of God forever. We discover, as we read our Bible, that both the prophets and the psalmists speak of the redeemed as a corporate Jacob and a corporate Israel. The New Testament makes it clear that those of Gentile background who have been saved are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Wherefore remember that once ye, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that ye were at that time separate from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Jesus, ye that once were far off are made nigh in the blood of Messiah. And again, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. By the grace of God, such have been grafted into that olive tree, which is the Israel of God. How amazing these statements are! The name of Israel, which we normally understand as a people, as a nation, and then as the redeemed of the Lord, actually began with one man called Jacob. The Lord did something in his life and changed him into Israel. From then onwards, both the name Jacob and the name Israel were given to the people of God. It seems, therefore, that there is something of vital importance and significance to learn about the man Jacob. The first and fundamental lesson we learn is that the love of God for Jacob is the key to everything in his history and life. So often we consider the love of God to be a Sunday school theme, a kindergarten subject. We're so familiar with it that we could easily lose its real import. The love of God is not sentimental or sugary. It is powerful and determined. One could even describe it as passionate and fearful in its range. How tremendous are these wonderful words, Jacob I have loved. They explain everything. Jacob the Twister I would not want to do any disservice to Jacob or demean or devalue him because one day I will meet him. Therefore, I want to be careful in the manner in which I write about him. Jacob was not, as is so often understood, an ugly, mean, unattractive character, a swindler of swindlers, full of deceit and cunning, with every dark and evil thing nestling in his heart. That kind of man is the typical picture which the anti-Semite paints of the Jew. It is not a true picture of Jacob. For one thing, Jacob must have been a highly intelligent and attractive man, because we find in the scriptural record some quite remarkable inferences. All the three women in his life, his mother, Rebecca, and his two wives, Leah and Rachel, apparently found him very attractive. Rebecca must have felt there was something very appealing about Jacob. 
From the manner in which Rebecca acted, it would seem that she had some deep intuitive feeling that Jacob had the character to inherit the birthright and the blessing, and not Esau. Was it only the prophetic word which she received before the twins were born that caused her to go to such lengths for Jacob? Then again, it seems to me that Rachel was attracted to Jacob from the moment she first saw him. The fact that he kissed her after he rolled back the stone on the well so that her sheep could be watered is remarkable. In the Middle East setting, then and now, it would be unthinkable. That Rachel was neither confounded nor repelled by his kiss speaks volumes. It is the same with Leah. It is apparent that she desired Jacob as much as Rachel. What was his appeal since he was penniless at the time? Neither Rachel nor Leah were marrying into riches, so into what were they marrying? There must have been something unusually appealing and attractive about Jacob. It is apparent to me that Leah willingly fell in with Laban's strategy to marry her to Jacob, knowing full well that Rachel had been promised to him, and that he would marry her in the end. If he was the spineless, anemic, round-shouldered, home-loving man that he is so often depicted, one wonders what it was that so attracted both of Laban's daughters. The scripture, in fact, describes Jacob as a home-loving man. Interestingly, the word used in Hebrew, tom, can be translated perfect, complete, sound or wholesome, and even has a meaning of complete or healthy physical strength. It is an interesting fact that when Jacob came to the region in which Laban lived, he found a whole number of flocks waiting to be watered. From the story, it emerges that the circular stone covering the well was a large and heavy one and needed a number of shepherds to move it. The fact that Jacob single-handedly moved the stone for Rachel reveals that he was no weakling. Furthermore, the fact that he wrestled all night with the heavenly visitor is further evidence that Jacob was no wimp. The difference between Jacob and Esau is often portrayed as the difference between an open-air type, athletic and physically strong, and a home-loving type, non-athletic and physically weak. This picture does not match the reality. Apart from the other evidence, the fact that Jacob was a shepherd contradicts the picture so often painted of him. There is no doubt that Esau was an athletic open-air type, the kind of man who was as happy to sleep outside the home as in it. Yet as a shepherd, Jacob must have had the qualities of endurance and ruggedness. He must have slept many times outside with his flocks, although as a choice, he preferred to sleep under his own roof. The Meaning of Jacob's Name Over against this portrayal of Jacob, we have to recognise the meaning of his name. When Jacob was born, he was born the second of twins. His mother, Rebecca had had a rough and difficult time with them in her pregnancy and had asked the Lord for the meaning of it. The Lord told her, Two nations are in thy womb and two peoples shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Of course, it was not a question of who was truly the elder, because these two boys were born at the same time. The situation of normal brothers, who would be born with at least a year between them, does not hold in the event of twins. 
Twins are born on the same day and normally at the same hour. In this instance, Esau was born first, and Jacob was born with his arm twisted around Esau's heel. In the light of that which the Lord had said to Rebekah, this was held to be highly significant by the family. In Hebrew, the word heel is akev, and the word supplant or twist is akeav. Thus they named him Jacob. Yaakov is a play on the word heel, twist, and supplant. The meaning of his name was that he took hold of his brother's heel as if he would pull him back and be born first. Literally, his name meant heel grabber or heel holder. It can best be understood as twister or supplanter. The idea was that by stealth or shrewdness, he intended to displace his brother and supplant him. At his birth, the traits that were to become more and more apparent with the progress of time were revealed. It is interesting to note Esau's words. Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times, he took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. Jacob, true to his name. There can be little discussion about the fact that Jacob was a brilliant businessman. He had shrewd business acumen. It was within his nature not only to sense a good deal, but also to clinch it. He was by nature acquisitive. He was the type of person who always prospers and who always makes money. In whatever condition or situation Jacob found himself, he always profited by it. It is instructive that when the story is read clearly and objectively, it becomes evident that Jacob did not want to deceive. In fact, when his mother planned the strategy for obtaining the blessing and revealed it to Jacob, he said, My father will surely say that I am a deceiver when he hears the voice of Jacob and feels my arms and neck and finds that I am smooth-skinned and not hairy like my brother Esau. It is also interesting to note how scandalised Jacob was about the cheating and swindling of his uncle Laban. It is in a highly indignant manner that he said to his wife Rachel, Your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. This reveals that Jacob did not realise or recognise his own nature and its strength. In other words, the problem with Jacob was not that he was some unattractive sharp dealer from the underworld, but rather that he had a nature which he was unable to control. His nature controlled him, and he was unaware of it. The Strength of Jacob's Nature There is an unlovely side to Jacob, which may often have been hidden. Nevertheless, it was there. It only needed the right circumstances and pressures to be brought out into the open. When his twin brother came in from an unsuccessful day of hunting, faint and hungry, he smelt the food Jacob was cooking and asked for a portion. Jacob saw his opportunity to obtain the birthright of the firstborn and immediately went for it. You can have as much as you want if you will only sell me your birthright. Apparently, Jacob was a good cook. The Word of God describes Esau as a despiser of his birthright. He had little time for the things of God and of eternity. On the other hand, whatever faults Jacob may have had, he valued the things of God. For him, the birthright and the blessing had real significance. 
Deep down within Jacob's heart, there was a recognition of divine things and their value. He wanted to obtain them because he realised that those were the things that truly mattered. What he could not control was his own natural strength and energy. He could not wait for God to work. He had to work in order to obtain them. I imagine Jacob must have known of the prophecy that was given to his parents before his birth. His mother, who adored him, must surely at some point have spoken to him about it. Without doubt, early on in his life he understood that the Lord had a very especial purpose for him. He recognised that the birthright and the blessing would be important elements in it. How the Lord would have brought both of these to him, we do not know. What we do know is that Jacob himself worked it, obtaining them by very questionable means. If the way he stole his brother's birthright was questionable, the incredible lengths to which he went to steal the blessing is shocking. It was his mother who planned the deception of his nearly blind father in order to obtain Esau's blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. The fact that she planned it, however, is no excuse for Jacob. Jacob only questioned his mother's plan for fear that his father would detect his deception of him. Nonetheless, he fully cooperated with her in its implementation. Jacob had no answer to the strength of his own nature. It swept him along. When he went to his uncle Laban, God promised that he would increase his flocks and prosper him. But Jacob had to help the Lord. He adopted a stratagem which involved seeking to influence the pigmentation of his and Laban's flocks by visual stimuli. By this technique, he increased his flocks to the detriment of Laban's flocks. Jacob clearly knew that God had specifically promised to prosper his flocks, but he could not leave the matter with the Lord. He had to help him. The Lord could have fulfilled his promise without Jacob's questionable help. Jacob's problem is also our problem. We have thousands of Christians who see something of the Lord but then try to get the whole operation off the ground. The mess that follows is incredible. Many of us will surely recognise what happens when we, newly saved, barge into the family and try to convert them all at gunshot until the family is sick to death of us. The fact of the matter is that we have understood what is right and we wish to be faithful. Nevertheless, instead of it being the Lord working through us, we are working for the Lord. There is a profound difference between working for the Lord and working with the Lord. Then again, consider the thousands of believers who see the truth of the house of God, the church, and then try to set it up. The church scene is littered with tragedies because people believe they have seen what is the church and then tried to put it into operation. We have apostles who are not apostles, prophets who are not prophets, elders who are not elders, deacons who are not deacons, ministers who are not ministers, and we have churches that are not the church expressed. We have people who are supposed to be authorities sent by God, and God never sent them. We use scriptural terms and set up systems. We build hierarchies. We create whole routines. We institutionalize the organic. We substitute natural techniques for the work of the Holy Spirit. Left to ourselves, we make such a mess of the church. 
What is the basic problem? It is not that our heart does not want the Lord. Our heart does want the Lord. Our problem is the strength of our natural life. We cannot control it. As soon as we see the value of the birthright, we are going to clinch the deal and obtain it, always, of course, with God's help. When we see the value of the blessing, we will obtain that blessing even if there has to be a little deception in it. Nevertheless, we will not rest until we have obtained it. Our attitude is that it will not drop out of heaven on us. If mother has to work her tricks by sewing up calf and goatskins, and Jacob has to sound gruff like his twin brother Esau, it is the end that justifies the means. Even if before Jacob was born, God had promised that the elder would serve the younger, he has to be helped for his word to be fulfilled. We have to use our common sense. Jacob met his match when he met Uncle Laban. The two of them tried to outwit each other for twenty years. It was the Lord's way to bring Jacob to a recognition of himself. He worked seven years for Rachel and ended up with Leah. It was Uncle Laban's work. Jacob was scandalised that his own uncle would do something like that. Seven years is not a short time, and there are probably few husbands who would work seven years to obtain their wives, and that without any salary. Imagine the shock if you had worked seven years for the one you had set your heart upon, and did not receive her, but received instead her sister. The trouble is that we make the scriptural story sound so beautiful when the reality was different. The Lord used this to bring Jacob to an end of his own natural strength, and to bring him to the place of desperation, to the place where God could meet him and transform him. In Laban, he saw his own twistedness. God's Irrational Love In spite of all Jacob's failings, his weaknesses, even his sin, the words of the Lord echo through the corridors of time. Jacob, I have loved. The love of God cannot be explained. Why did the Lord so love Jacob? Some will say, well, of course, God saw something in Jacob that was beautiful. That is why he loved him. I am not sure that this is the explanation. Consider the way the Lord speaks about this matter. For example, in Deuteronomy, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a people for his own possession, above all peoples that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people for ye were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loveth you. And again, Behold, unto the Lord thy God belongeth heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is therein. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples, as at this day. This statement of the Lord is remarkable for its simplicity and straightness. The Lord was declaring that he set his love on them because he loves them. The Lord set his love on Jacob because he loved him. There is no other real explanation. Why does the Lord love you? It is a good question. One might be able to find some features about you as to why God loves you. 
I can only state that I find myself at a total loss as to why God loves me. It is beyond my understanding, and I can only come back to this word. The Lord loves you because he loves you. Do not question why certain people fall in love with one another, although it is a normal and natural event. Sometimes you meet a person who loves somebody else so passionately and completely that you are left wondering what on earth he or she sees in that one. For that person, however, the one he or she loves is the most beautiful creature that ever graced this earth, and everything about them is lovable. Such love is beyond understanding. It is inexplicable and incredible. You cannot place it under a microscope to examine its makeup or analyse its components. Sometimes we like to think that God loves us because he has plans to use us. But is that the explanation of his love for us? When you come to a place where you fail, then the devil will come to you and say, Your Lord does not love you anymore, for you have lost your usefulness to him. Your value to him is lost. It is as if we believe that the Lord is some kind of shrewd mastermind with a high business acumen who weighs the pros and cons about us and considers how best he could exploit us for his own purposes. This is not true. It is a lie. In some incredible manner that is far beyond our understanding, God loves us because he loves us. He loves you because he loves you, and that is the heart of this whole matter. That is why the names of Jacob and Israel are given to the redeemed people of God. There can be no other explanation for the persevering and steadfast love of God for Jacob. It is beyond reason and is, in one sense, irrational. We could describe it as the irrationality of divine love. The Wonder of God's Love The wonder of God's love is tremendous. He did not say, as he could well have said, Israel I have loved. If he had said that, Theologically, one could understand it. He loved Israel because Israel was the converted, the changed, and the transformed Jacob. Israel was the perfected Jacob. God would rather forget the old Jacob. He only ever really loved Israel. However, we have no record concerning Jacob the individual that God ever said, Israel I have loved, although of course it would be true. He said, Jacob I have loved. In other words, he takes the lowest denominator. He takes the person at his worst and says, I love him. I chose him because I love him. Praise God that his nature is love. Stay tuned for chapter 3 of Jacob I Have Loved. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus.